Section 18 of The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume 1B. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government by Jefferson Davis. Volume 1B, Part 4, Chapter 6. Removal of the Seat of Government to Richmond. Message to Congress at Richmond. Confederate Forces in Virginia. Forces of the Enemy. Letter to General Johnston. Combat at Bethel Church. Affair at Romney. Movements of McDowell. Battle of Manassas. The Provisional Congress, in session at Montgomery, Alabama, on the 21st of May, 1861, resolved... Quote, that this Congress will adjourn on Tuesday next to meet again on the 20th day of July at Richmond, Virginia. End quote. The resolution further authorized the President to have the several executive departments, with their archives, removed at such intermediate time as he might determine, and added a proviso that, if any public emergency should render it impolitic to meet in Richmond, he should call the Congress together at some other place to be selected by him. The hostile demonstrations of the United States government against Virginia caused the President, at an early day after the adjournment of Congress, to proceed to Richmond and to direct the executive departments, with their archives, to be removed to that place as soon as could be conveniently done. In the message delivered to the Congress at its meeting in Richmond, according to adjournment, I gave the following explanation of my conduct under the resolution above cited. Quote, Immediately after your adjournment, the aggressive movement of the enemy required prompt, energetic action. The accumulation of his forces on the Potomac sufficiently demonstrated that his efforts were to be directed against Virginia, and from no point could necessary measures for her defense and protection be so effectively decided as from her own capital. On my arrival in Richmond, General R. E. Lee, as commander of the Army of Virginia, was found there, where he had established his headquarters. He possessed my unqualified confidence, both as a soldier and a patriot, and the command he had exercised over the Army of Virginia before her accession to the Confederacy gave him that special knowledge which at the time was most needful. As has been already briefly stated, troops had previously been sent from other states of the Confederacy to the aid of Virginia. The forces there assembled were divided into three armies at positions the most important and threatened. One, under General J. E. Johnston, at Harper's Ferry, covering the valley of the Shenandoah. Another, under General P.G.T. Beauregard at Manassas, covering the direct approach from Washington to Richmond, and the third, under Generals Huger and Magruder, at Norfolk and on the peninsula between the James and York Rivers, covering the approach to Richmond from the seaboard. The first and second of these armies, though separated by the Blue Ridge, had such practicable communication with each other as to render their junction possible when the necessity should be foreseen. They both were confronted by forces greatly superior in numbers to their own, 
and it was doubtful which would first be the object of attack. Harper's Ferry was an important position, both for military and political considerations, and though unfavorably situated for defense against an enemy which should seek to turn its position by crossing the Potomac above, it was desirable to hold it as long as was consistent with safety. The temporary occupation was especially needful for the removal of the valuable machinery and material in the armory located there, and which the enemy had failed to destroy, though he had for that purpose fired the buildings before his evacuation of the post. The demonstrations of General Patterson, commanding the Federal Army in that region, caused General Johnston earnestly to insist on being allowed to retire to a position nearer to Winchester. Under these circumstances, an official letter was addressed to him from which the following extract is made. Quote, Adjutant and Inspector General's Office, Richmond, June 13, 1861, to General J.E. Johnston, commanding Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Sir, you had been heretofore instructed to exercise your discretion as to retiring from your position at Harper's Ferry and taking the field to check the advance of the enemy. The ineffective portion of your command, together with the baggage and whatever else would impede your operations in the field, it would be well to send without delay to the Manassas Road. Should you not be sustained by the population of the valley, so as to enable you to turn upon the enemy before reaching Winchester, you will continue slowly to retire to the Manassas Road, upon some of the passes of which it is hoped you will be able to make an effective stand, even against a very superior force. To this end it might be well to send your engineer to make a reconnaissance and construct such temporary works as may be useful and proper. For these reasons, it has been with reluctance that any attempt was made to give you specific instructions, and you will accept assurances of the readiness with which the freest exercise of discretion on your part will be sustained. Very respectfully, your obedient servant. Signed, S. Cooper, Adjutant and Inspector General. End quote. The earliest combat in this quarter, and which, in the inexperience of the time, was regarded as a great battle, may claim a passing notice as exemplifying the extent to which the individuality, self-reliance, and habitual use of small arms by the people of the South was a substitute for military training, and, on the other hand, how the want of such training made the northern new levies inferior to the like kind of southern troops. A detached work on the right of General Magruder's line was occupied June 11, 1861, by the 1st Regiment of North Carolina Volunteers and 360 Virginians under the command of an educated, vigilant, and gallant soldier, then Colonel D. H. Hill, 1st Regiment North Carolina Volunteers, subsequently a Lieutenant General in the Confederate Service. He reports that this small force was engaged for five and a half hours with four and a half regiments of the enemy at Bethel Church, nine miles from Hampton. The enemy made three distinct and well-sustained charges, but were repulsed with heavy loss. Our cavalry pursued them for six miles, when their retreat became a total rout. On the other side, Frederick Townsend, Colonel of 3rd Regiment of the enemy's forces, 
after stating with much minuteness the orders and line of march describes how about five or six miles from hampton a heavy and well-sustained fire of canister and small arms was opened upon the regiment and how it was afterward discovered to be a portion of their own column which had fired upon them after due care for the wounded and a recognition of their friends the column proceeded and the colonel describes his regiment as moving to the attack in line of battle as if on parade in the face of a severe fire of artillery and small arms subsequently the description proceeds a company of my regiment had been separated from the regiment by a thickly hedged ditch and marched in the adjoining field in line with the main body not being aware of the separation of that company the colonel states that therefore upon seeing among the breaks in the hedge the glistening of bayonets in the adjoining field i immediately concluded that the enemy were outflanking and conceived it to be my duty to immediately retire and repel that advance without knowing anything of the subsequent career of the colonel from whose report these extracts have been made or of the officers who opened fire upon him while he was marching to the execution of the orders under which they were all acting it is fair to suppose that after a few months experience such scenes as are described could not have occurred and these citations have been made to show the value of military training in further exemplification of the difference between the troops of the confederate states and those of the united states before either had been trained in war i will cite an affair which occurred on the upper potomac colonel a p hill commanding a brigade at romney in western virginia having learned that the enemy had a command at the twenty-first bridge on the baltimore and ohio railroad decided to attack it and to destroy the bridge so as to interrupt the use of that important line of the enemy's communication for this purpose he ordered colonel john c vaughn of the third tennessee volunteers to proceed with a detachment of two companies of his regiment and two companies of the thirteenth virginia volunteers to the position where the enemy were reported to be posted colonel vaughn reports that on june eighteenth eighteen sixty one at eight p m he moved with his command as ordered marched eighteen miles and at five a m the next morning found the enemy on the north bank of the potomac in some strength of infantry and with two pieces of artillery he had no picket guards after reconnaissance the order to charge was given it was necessary in the execution of the order to ford the river waist deep which colonel vaughn reports was gallantly executed in good order but with great enthusiasm as we appeared in sight at a distance of four hundred yards the enemy broke and fled in all directions, firing as they ran only a few random shots. The enemy did not wait to fire their artillery, which we captured, both guns loaded. They were, however, spiked by the enemy before he fled. From the best information, their number was between two and three hundred. Colonel Vaughn further states that, in pursuance of orders, he fired the bridge and then retired, bringing away the two guns and the enemy's flag and other articles of little value which had been captured and arrived at brigade headquarters in the evening with his command in high spirits good condition colonel a p hill the energetic brigade commander who directed this expedition 
left the united states army when the state which had given him to the military service of the general government passed her ordinance of secession the vigilance and enterprise he manifested on this early occasion in the war of the states gave promise of the brilliant career which gained for him the high rank of a lieutenant-general and which there was nothing for his friends to regret save the honorable death which he met upon the field of battle colonel vaughan the commander of the detachment was new to war his paths had been those of peace and his home in the mountains of east tennessee might reasonably have secured him from any expectation that it would ever be the theater on which armies were to contend and that he in the mutation of human affairs would become a soldier he lived until the close of the war and on larger fields than that on which he first appeared proved that though not educated for a soldier he had endowments which compensated for that disadvantage the activity and vigilance of stuart afterwards so distinguished as commander of cavalry in the army of virginia and the skill and daring of jackson soon by greater deeds to become immortal checked punished and embarrassed the enemy in his threatened advances and his movements became so devoid of a definite purpose that one was at a loss to divine the object of his campaign unless it was to detain general johnston with his forces in the valley of the shenandoah while general mcdowell profiting by the feint should make the real attack upon general beauregard's army at manassas however that may be the evidence finally became conclusive that the enemy under general mcdowell was moving to attack the army under general beauregard the contingency had therefore arisen for that junction which was necessary to enable us to resist the vastly superior numbers of our assailant for though the most strenuous and not wholly unsuccessful exertions had been made to reinforce both the armies of the shenandoah and of the potomac they yet remained far smaller than those of the enemy confronting them and made a junction of our forces indispensable whenever the real point of attack should be ascertained for this movement we had the advantage of an interior line so that if the enemy should discover it after it commenced he could not counteract it by adopting the same tactics the success of this policy it will readily be perceived depended upon the time of execution for though from different causes failure would equally result if done too soon or too late the determination as to which army should be reinforced from the other and the exact time of the transfer must have been a difficult problem as both the generals appeared to have been unable to solve it each asking reinforcements from the other on the ninth of july general johnston wrote an official letter from which i make the following extracts quote, headquarters winchester july ninth eighteen sixty one general similar information from other sources gives me the impression that the reinforcements arriving at martinsburg amount to seven or eight thousand i have estimated the enemy's force hitherto you may remember at eighteen thousand additional artillery has also been received they were greatly superior to us in that arm before the object of reinforcing general patterson must be an advance upon this place fighting here against great odds seems to me more prudent than retreat 
i have not asked for reinforcements because i suppose that the war department informed of the state of affairs everywhere could best judge where the troops at its disposal are most required most respectfully your obedient servant signed joseph e johnston brigadier general etc if it is proposed to strengthen us against the attack i suggest as soon to be made it seems to me that general beauregard might with great expedition furnish five or six thousand men for a few days j e j as soon as i became satisfied that manassas was the objective point of the enemy's movement i wrote to general johnston urging him to make preparations for a junction with general beauregard and to his objections and the difficulties he presented replied at great length endeavoring to convince him that the troops he described as embarrassing a hasty march might be withdrawn in advance of the more effective portion of his command writing with entire confidence i kept no copy of my letters and when subsequent events caused the wish to refer to them i requested general johnston to send me copies of them he replied that his tent had been blown down and his papers had been scattered his letters to me which would show the general purport of mine to him have shared the fate which during or soon after the close of the war befell most of the correspondence i had preserved and his retained copies if still in his possession do not appear to have been deemed of sufficient importance to be inserted in his published narrative on the seventeenth of july eighteen sixty one the following telegram was sent by the adjutant general Quote, richmond july seventeenth eighteen sixty one to general j e johnston winchester virginia general beauregard is attacked to strike the enemy a decisive blow a junction of all your effective force will be needed if practicable make the movement sending your sick and baggage to culpeper courthouse either by railroad or by warrenton in all the arrangements exercise your discretion signed s cooper adjutant and inspector general the confidence reposed in general johnston sufficiently evinced by the important command entrusted to him was more than equal to the expectation that he would do all that was practicable to execute the order for a junction as well as to secure his sick and baggage for the execution of the one great purpose that he would allow no minor question to interfere with that which was of vital importance and for which he was informed all his effective force would be needed the order referred to was the telegram inserted above in which the sending the sick to culpeper courthouse might have been after or before the effective force had moved to the execution of the main and only positive part of the order all the arrangements were left to the discretion of the general it seems strange that anyone has construed this expression as meaning that the movement for a junction was left to the discretion of that officer and that the forming of a junction the imperious necessity should have been termed in the order all the arrangement instead of referring that word to its proper connection the route and mode of transportation the general had no margin on which to institute a comparison as to the importance of his remaining in the valley according to his previous assignment or going where he was ordered by competent authority 
It gives me pleasure to state that, from all the accounts received at the time, the plans of General Johnston for masking his withdrawal to form a junction with General Beauregard were conducted with marked skill, and though all of his troops did not arrive as soon as expected and needed, he has satisfactorily shown that the failure was not due to any defect in his arrangements for their transportation. The great question of uniting the two armies had been decided at Richmond. The time and place depended on the enemy, and when it was seen that the real attack was to be against the position at Manassas, the order was sent to General Johnston to move to that point. His letters of the 12th and 15th instant expressed his doubts about his power to retire from before the superior force of General Patterson. Therefore the word practicable was, in this connection, the equivalent of possible. That it was, at the time, so understood by General Johnston is shown by his reply to the telegram. Quote, Headquarters, Winchester, July 18, 1861. General, I have had the honor to receive your telegram of yesterday. General Patterson, who had been at Bunker Hill since Monday, seems to have moved yesterday to Charlestown, 23 miles to the east of Winchester. Unless he prevents it, we shall move toward General Beauregard today. Signed, Joseph E. Johnston, General S. Cooper, end quote. After General Johnston commenced his march to Manassas, he sent to me a telegram, the substance of which, as my memory serves and the reply indicates, was an inquiry as to the relative position he would occupy toward General Beauregard. I returned the following answer. Quote, Richmond, July twentieth, 1861, General J.E. Johnston, Manassas Junction, Virginia. You are a general in the Confederate Army, possessed of the power attaching to that rank. You will know how to make the exact knowledge of Brigadier General Beauregard as well of the ground as of the troops and preparation avail for the success of the object in which you cooperate. The zeal of both assures me of harmonious action. Signed, Jefferson Davis. End quote. General Johnston, by his promotion to the grade of general, as well as his superior rank as a brigadier over Brigadier General Beauregard, gave him precedence, so there was no need to ask which of the two would command the whole when their troops should join and do duty together. Therefore his inquiry, as it was revolved in my mind, created an anxiety not felt before, lest there should be some unfortunate complication or misunderstanding between these officers when their forces should be united. Regarding the combat of the 18th of July as the precursor of a battle, I decided at the earliest moment to go in person to the army. As has been heretofore stated, Congress was to assemble on the 20th of July to hold its first session at the new capital, Richmond, Virginia. My presence on that occasion and the delivery of a message were required by usage and law. After the delivery of the message to Congress on Saturday, the 20th of July, I intended to leave in the afternoon for Manassas, but was detained until the next morning, when I left by rail, accompanied by my aide-de-camp, Colonel J. R. Davis, to confer with the generals on the field. As we approached Manassas Railroad Junction, a cloud of dust was visible a short distance to the west of the railroad. 
it resembled one raised by a body of marching troops and recalled to my remembrance the design of general beauregard to make the rappahannock his second line of defense it was however subsequently learned that the dust was raised by a number of wagons which had been sent to the rear for greater security against the contingencies of the battle the sound of the firing had now become very distinct so much so as to leave no doubt that a general engagement had commenced though that event had been anticipated as being near at hand after the action of the eighteenth it was both hoped and desired that it would not occur quite so soon the more so as it was not known whether the troops from the valley had yet arrived on reaching the railroad junction i found a large number of men bearing the usual evidence of those who leave the field of battle under a panic they crowded around the train with fearful stories of a defeat of our army the railroad conductor announced his decision that the railroad train should proceed no further looking among those who were about us for one whose demeanor gave reason to expect from him a collected answer i selected one whose gray beard and calm face gave best assurance he however could furnish no encouragement our line he said was broken all was confusion the army routed and the battle lost i asked for generals johnston and beauregard he said they were on the field when he left it i returned to the conductor and told him that i must go on that the railroad was the only means by which i could proceed and that until i reached the headquarters i could not get a horse to ride to the field where the battle was raging he finally consented to detach the locomotive from the train and for my accommodation to run it as far as the army headquarters in this manner colonel davis aide-de-camp and myself proceeded at the headquarters we found the quartermaster general w l cable and the adjutant general jordan of general beauregard's staff who courteously agreed to furnish us horses and also to show us the route while the horses were being prepared colonel jordan took occasion to advise my aide-de-camp colonel davis of the hazard of going to the field and the impropriety of such exposure on my part the horses were after a time reported ready and we started to the field the stragglers soon became numerous and warnings as to the fate which awaited us if we advanced were not only frequent but evidently sincere there were however many who turned back and the wounded generally cheered upon meeting us i well remembered one a mere stripling who supported on the shoulders of a man who was bearing him to the rear took off his cap and waved it with a cheer that showed within that slender form beat the heart of a hero breathe the spirit that would dare the labors of hercules as we advanced the storm of the battle was rolling westward and its fury became more faint when i met general johnston who was upon a hill which commanded a general view of the field of the afternoon's operations and inquired of him as to the state of affairs he replied that we had won the battle i left him there and rode still further to the west several of the volunteers on general beauregard's staff joined me and a command of cavalry the gallant leader of which captain john f lay insisted that i was too near the enemy to be without an escort 
we however only saw one column near to us that created a doubt as to which side it belonged and as we were riding toward it it was suggested that we should halt until it could be examined with a field glass colonel chestnut dismounted so as the better to use his glass and at that moment the column formed into line by which the wind struck the flag so as to extend it and it was plainly revealed to be that of the united states our cavalry though there was present but the squadron previously mentioned and from a statement of the commander of which i will make some extracts dashed boldly forward to charge the demonstration was followed by the immediate retreat of what was i believe the last thereabout of the enemy's forces maintaining their organization and showing a disposition to dispute the possession of the field of battle in riding over the ground it seemed quite possible to mark the line of a fugitive's flight here was a musket there a cartridge box there a blanket or overcoat a haversack etc as if the runner had stripped himself as he went of all impediments to speed as we approached toward the left of our line the signs of an utter rout of the enemy were unmistakable and justified the conclusion that the watchword of on to richmond had been changed to off for washington on the extreme left of our field of operations i found the troops whose opportune arrival had averted impending disaster and had so materially contributed to our victory some of them had after arriving at the manassas railroad junction hastened to our left their brigadier general e k smith was wounded soon after getting into action and the command of the brigade devolved upon elsie by whom it was gallantly and skilfully led to the close of the battle others under the command of general then colonel early made a rapid march under the pressing necessity from the extreme right of our line to and beyond our left so as to attack the enemy in flank thus inflicting on him the discomfiture his oblique movement was designed to inflict on us all these troops and the others near to them had hastened into action without supplies or camp equipage weary hungry and without shelter night closed around them where they stood the blood-stained victors on a hard-fought field it was reported to me that some of the troops had been so long without food as to be suffering severe hunger and that no supplies could be got where they were i made several addresses to them all to the effect that their position was that best adapted to a pursuit of the enemy and that they should therefore remain there adding that i would go to the headquarters and direct that supplies should be sent to them promptly general then colonel early commanding a brigade informed me of some wounded who required attention one colonel gardner was he said at a house not far from where we were i rode to see him found him in severe pain and from the twitching visible and frequent seemed to be threatened with tetanus a man sat beside him whose uniform was that of the enemy but he was gentle and appeared to be solicitously attentive he said that he had no morphine and did not know where to get any i found in a short time a surgeon who went with me to colonel gardner having the articles necessary in the case before leaving colonel gardner 
he told me that the man who was attending to him might without hindrance have retreated with his comrades but had kindly remained with him and he therefore asked my protection for the man i took the name and the state of the supposed good samaritan and at army headquarters directed that he should not be treated as a prisoner the sequel will be told hereafter it was then late and we rode back in the night say seven miles to the army headquarters i had not seen general beauregard on the field and did not find him at his quarters when we returned the promise made to the troops was therefore communicated to a staff officer who said he would have the supply sent out at a later hour when i met general beauregard and informed him of what had occurred he stated that because of a false alarm which had reached him he had ordered the troops referred to from the left to the right of our line so as to be in position to repel the reported movement of the enemy against that flank that such an alarm should have been credited and a night march ordered on account of it shows how little the completeness of the victory was realized end of chapter six recording by bill mosley lano county texas u s a